All right, you can turn over to Luke chapter 2. Luke, Luke chapter 2. <laughs> doing a couple of Christmas a couple of Christmas messages this next week and uh, also invite you out for uh, Christmas Eve that uh, we'll have a time of singing some carols and communion and fellowship just from six to seven so it's a good time to invite friends and family um, to that service. But this morning we're looking in the Gospel of Luke, and we just want to look at the first 14 uh, verses. And um, this chapter really provides for us most, the most detailed look, really, at the events in Christmas. The Gospel of Luke does. It's widely known. It's very much read at this time of the year. We're very familiar with the story. Uh, we've seen cards and pageants and books and all kinds of things written about this. But unfortunately, the world tends to celebrate Christmas for all um, the wrong reasons. And uh, we know that by living in the world. And it's become, Christmas has become a, just almost a, an excuse for self-indulgence, materialism, and, and just throwing a big bash. And eating lots of food, of course. <laughs> but you know what? There's, there's something more to it than that. It's, it's degenerated into just a, a secularized social event. And the Lord wants us to have so much more this Christmas. And the church, I don't know if you know this, but the church did not originally celebrate Christ's birth. Um, some of the early church fathers' origin included even argued against the idea of celebrating birthdays of the saints. And martyrs. They said, instead, you should honor the day of their martyrdom, not their birthday. And throughout Scripture, we don't see a lot of people celebrating birthdays. We're not against celebrating birthdays, by the way, but a lot of people view the Scriptures, and the only birthdays that were really mentioned are Pharaoh and Herod. Probably not good company. And by the second century, the actual date of Christ's birth had been completely forgotten. That's why we don't really know when he was born. And there was a lot of different dates, January 2nd, the 6th, March 21st, March 25th, April 18th, April 19th, May 20th, the 28th, November 17th, all these different ver uh, dates that people came up with to celebrate the birth of Christ. They thought that's when it happened. But we don't know exactly when Christ was born. We know it wasn't on December 25th, but um, it could have been in the, the wintertime or the springtime. It's kind of irrelevant when it was. The idea is, is that we want to celebrate the birth of Christ. Uh, Christmas was being celebrated on December 5th by the Church of Rome no later than 336 A.D. And that was just generally adopted. Uh, by the birth of Christ. A lot of people think of Christmas as a pagan holiday, which it is. But for Christians, it's not. Uh, 
And we don't uh, have a problem with people celebrating Christmas. We celebrate Christmas wholeheartedly because it celebrates, at least in theme, the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if he wasn't born, he couldn't have died. And if he didn't die, our sins would not have been forgiven. But on the 25th, there is a pagan holiday, and they basically worship a sun god and the birth of that sun god. And so a lot of people have a problem with, with Christmas being celebrated as a Christian holiday. And I thought, hey, whenever you can steal something away from the world and Satan and make it all about Christ, why not? And that's really what, it's, what, what has happened. Um, unfortunately, over the years, it's been watered down and diluted to the point where you barely see Christ in Christmas anymore as far as the secular world goes. Um, you say, well, where did the, the manger scene and all that come from? Well, someone says that St. Francis of Assisi in the 13th century came up with this idea of having a manger scene. Uh, the practice of singing carols didn't really come around until the Middle Ages. Um, Riga in Latvia claims to be the home of the first Christmas tree, dating about 1510. Others attribute the Christmas, first Christmas tree to Martin Luther, surprisingly, who allegedly bought an evergreen and brought it into his house and decorated it. There's no record, contemporary record of that, at least to any degree, but that's what legend has said. The first commercial Christmas cards were sold in London in 1843. And then you say, well, what about Santa Claus? Well, he's a secular symbol of Christmas, but he's really derived from the 4th century Saint Nicholas. He was a bishop of Myra in modern-day Turkey. And we don't know a lot about Nicholas's life, but Nicholas was remembered for his generosity and his kindness to people. According to one legend, he rescued three daughters of a poor family and, and saved them from being forced into prostitution. And he provided the dowries so that they could um, be saved from that situation. The legend says, after during, doing their laundry, the girls hung their stockings by the fireplace to dry. And that night, Nicholas tossed a small bag of gold coins into each girl's stocking. And the custom of hanging Christmas stockings derives from that part of the story. Uh, settlers in the Netherlands, where Nicholas was very popular, bought, brought this tradition to them when they came and settled in America. And Nicholas's Dutch name, Sinterklaas, eventually became known as Santa Claus. Now, all those extra-biblical elements of Christmas um, may be fun to enjoy, but they they're, uh, cloud the message of Christmas, truly. Martin Luther confessed this, When I am told that God became a man, I can follow the idea. But I just do not understand what it means. For what man, if left to his natural promptings, Promptings, if he were God, would humble himself to lie in the feed box of a donkey or hang upon a cross. God laid upon Christ the iniquities of us all. The quote goes on, it says, This is that infinite mercy of God, 
which the slender capacity of man's heart cannot comprehend, and much less utter that unfathomable depth and burning zeal of God's love toward us. Who can sufficiently declare this exceeding great goodness of God? And when we think of the story of Christ and his death and resurrection and even his birth, this promise made by Mary to Mary by Gabriel is about to be fulfilled. And Luke picks up this story in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 14. And um, you can stand in honor of God's word as we read these verses. You can follow along in your Bibles. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 14. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Cornelius, the governor of Syria, was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Verse 6, And while they were there... The time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Verse 8, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a great multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Father, we ask you to bless this word to our hearts and our minds as we spend a little time here the next few moments. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The opening words here in verse 1 really inform us that Caesar Augustus was the ruler, it says, of the entire world. He inhabited all the inhabited world. He was the ruler of at the time. He was the great nephew of Julius Caesar, and he was born basically a fighter, and he clawed his way to the top by defeating Antony and Cleopatra, and then through incredible genius, the force of his own person, he gave the empire a solidness that was to endure for centuries in the Roman Empire. He was the first Caesar to be called Augustus, by the way. And, and Augustus has an idea of holiness or reverend. That's what that means. And so they were really making him God. It was exclusively reserved for gods. And so they were calling their, their natural, their leader here on earth, a god. The Romans were. About the same time Luke was writing these words, some of the Greek cities in Asia Minor adopted Caesar's birthday, September 23rd, as the first day of the new year, new year hailing him Savior. This was how far off base they were. And there was an, actually a, an inscription in his birthplace 
calling him savior of the whole world. Obviously not in a spiritual sense, but they truly looked at him as a savior type. Historian John Buchan said this, men actually comforted themselves reflecting that Augustus was a god and that gods do not die. And when Caesar Augustus died, they comforted themselves with these words. So the world had made him a self-proclaimed God and Savior, small g. (laughs) And Luke, this great historian, this theologian, wants us to see this setting. He's giving us a backdrop for what the birth of Christ is coming into. He's not really worried about all the details of these, these leaders that he's listing here. But it is interesting, when you look at these opening verses, you see a downward spiral of power and influence in the names listed. In verse 1, it talks of Augustus. Verse 2, Cornelius, the, 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 the regional governor who's under Augustus. And then next name is Joseph in verse 4. He was poor, but he was a free man. And then you had Mary, in verse 5, who is an unmarried pregnant woman. And then finally, you have the tiny baby Christ brought to our attention in verses 6 and 7. It would be hard to imagine a less powerful, less privileged person on the planet at the moment than this infant sleeping in a feeding trough of an animal. So everything in these verses really screams at us, this baby was way, way, way down on the ladder as far as the social economic ladder of the day. He was lowly. And the irony here is clear if you look at Luke's narrative where it's heading. The man who is recognized by the world, the king, Augustus, who lived in a place of opulence, a palace, with protection and all kinds of perks that he had. And then you have, and he declared himself to be God, and then you had the true God, the baby Christ, whose beginnings could not have been more humble, but his kingdom would far outreach the glories of Rome. Jesus was his, his birth name there in verse 21, a little further down. They gave him that name according to the angel's instructions. He was the truly the most high son of the most high. And the Bible says that he would reign on David's throne in an eternal kingdom that puts Augustus' empire to shame because his empire will not be eternal, but Christ will be. And the lowly circumstances really here of of Jesus' birth show us that God's kingdom will come in ways that sometimes we don't understand. Sometimes they surprise us. They subvert our expectations by giving us a picture of what true greatness and true power might look like in the eyes of God. We were talking this morning in our devotion as a worship team about envying the ungodly, because it seems like, boy, they just get richer and richer and richer and more blessed here in this world. Not by God, obviously. 
But you think, wow, here we are struggling and trying to do the right thing and live by godly principles and living check to check, trying to make ends meet, and yet these people are hands over fist in money. And you can really grow a, a sour, envious attitude toward that. But as we're told in Psalm 73, it, it ends up not too well for those people. And so it's good to be on the right side of God's blessing. And so what a privilege it was for this angel to announce the birth of the Savior. We don't know exactly who the angel was. It doesn't really tell us. It could have been Gabriel, whatever. But it was an unnamed angel. And then it's followed by this heavenly chorus of angels praising and glorifying God, it says. And so the first, you could call this the first Christmas morning, really, these shepherds heard the gospel. They heard the good news of the birth of Christ. That's part of the gospel. And today, as we live in a day in which we live as Christians, what an incredible privilege it is for us as believers to be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with a lost and dying world. I mean, think about it. Angels, these angels here were glorious angels, so they were they never sinned. They were, they were perfect. But you know what? We have sinned. And we can speak from personal experience how much we need the saving power of Christ. Angels can't comprehend that. That's why they, they long to understand these kind of things. Angels can't be saved, but we can. And so as we consider this morning the gospel of Christmas, I want to give you seven reasons why the gospel is good news. That's what the word means, good news. The good news of the gospel. You hear it all the time. Well, the first reason here, the gospel is good news because it banishes fear. Look at what he says in verse 10. He says, fear not. In verse 9, we're told that the angels were, or the, the shepherds were filled with fear. They were terrorized with great fear. The good news of the Savior's birth came first to the most unlikely group of people, shepherds of all people. They were on the bottom of the, the, the social ladder. <laughs> they were uneducated generally. They were unskilled. They were considered a lot of times to be dishonest, unreliable, unsavory people. So much so that the laws of the, the day in, in which these, this happened, they weren't even allowed to testify in court. If you were a shepherd, you weren't allowed to testify. Now, think of it. You're a shepherd of a flock. That's, you know, that's kind of like owning a horse or owning a dog, right? It's 24-7. You don't get a break. It's hard work. Um, and these, it required seven days a week, 24 hours a day. These shepherds were fully unable to comply with any kind of Sabbath regulations that they had because they couldn't just stop because it was the Sabbath. They had to continue to watch over the sheep. And so all these regulations that were developed by the Pharisees made them continually violate the religious laws of the day. So most of the religious people of the day looked at shepherds as just a bunch of heathen. 
hanging out with a bunch of animals, and they were ceremonially unclean. They were considered unclean people, spiritually, and probably physically, too. I mean, if you're out watching your sheep, you probably can't take showers every day. I mean, probably after a while, you begin to smell like the sheep. I don't know if I ever smelled a sheep, but I'm sure they don't smell good. So they had that kind of a background. Now, that doesn't mean that they were illegitimate or they were disreputable. The occupation of being a shepherd is just that most of the shepherds of the day fell into that group. You think throughout the Bible, who, who were shepherds? Moses and David? I mean, they were shepherds at some point in their lives. Old Testament refers metaphorically to, to God as what? The, the shepherd of Israel. So the Bible doesn't look at shepherds in the same light the world does, necessarily. Matter of fact, Jesus described himself as what? The good shepherd, as opposed to probably these characters. But they were lowly. They were humble people. Uh, They were certainly not the ones that you would expect that the angel would announce the birth of the Savior of the world to. But here they were singled out to receive one of the greatest honors ever given to anyone. Uh, It suggests that these, these shepherds were devout men. These were shepherds who believed in the true and living God. So they weren't necessarily the unsavory type. Now, remember, there hadn't been any word from God in over 400 years at this point. There's kind of a break in time, right? You had the Old Testament prophets speaking the word of God. That's all there. And then, then there's a big break before the birth of Christ. 400 years. There's no real prophets declaring the word of God until this angel spoke to announce the birth of Christ. But it was very much this humdrum life of the shepherds was interrupted that that day by a most amazing dramatic event. It says there, as they were standing, (laughs) watching over their flocks, an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. I've never seen an angel of the Lord. But I'm sure if I did, I'd be afraid. I'd be fearful. The angel of the Lord here is not identified, as I said, but most likely it's probably Gabriel. But it says, The glory of the Lord blazed forth out of the darkness and shone around them. I mean, when you stop and think about the glory of the Lord, you know, it's one thing to kind of think about it in your mind. It's another thing to be in its presence. And the shepherds were understandably terrified at this point by the appearing of the angel and by the manifestation of God's glory. You know, we've had our grandkids living with us and it's kind of a thing with my granddaughters to scare grandpa all the time. You know, I'll just be walking into the kitchen to get a glass of milk or something. And I turn around and they're both there. Just, you know, it startles you. 
And so as much as I try to anticipate it, they still are successful at this task they have every day to scare grandpa. But we're not talking about that kind of frightened here. Okay, that's just a jolting kind of like, whoa, whoa, I didn't know you were there. But this is a a, a terrible fear fell upon these people. I mean, fear was a normal response whenever anyone in Scripture has encountered an angel or saw the glory of the Lord. If you look up all the, the verses that have to do with that, you can see that. Nobody was ever encountered by an angel or by God's glory and just, hey, what's up? Good to see you. No. It was all always fear was the response. And they were acutely aware of their, their sinfulness in the presence of holiness. And that's what God wants from us. God wants us to see our sinfulness in the presence of his holiness. That's why Isaiah cried out in Isaiah 6, 5, Woe is me, I am ruined. This is a prophet of God, by the way, saying this. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, Saul, the most holy God. And he had to look at himself and say, wow, I am undone here. Or Peter, as he exclaimed after witnessing a miracle performed by the Lord in in Luke chapter 5, verse 8. He says, go away from me, Lord, for I am what? I am a sinful man, O Lord. I, I, I can't even be in your presence, Lord. As believers, we need to be reminded... From where we were saved, the pit of sin that we were saved out of. Because a lot of times, believers, the older they get in Christ, the more distant they grow from their roots. And they begin to feel a self-righteousness kind of well up inside them. And then when someone's not a Christian, or someone's lost in sin, or someone's doing something that's sinful, they look down down a tendency to to say, wow, how could that person ever be like that? That's disgusting. Get them away from me. The complete opposite of what Jesus did. What did Jesus do? Jesus went to sinners. He ate with sinners. He spent time with sinners. They accused him of doing such things. As if that was something bad. You know, we need to shake off our religiosity and remember that there's a a lost and dying world out there that needs Christ. Just the other day, we were in a coffee shop and we started talking to a woman who's homeless. And, you know, it's tough to see people in that plight. You have to be, you can't just throw money at situations like that because that's probably not the answer for their, their need. But it's hard. Because we live in a world that's tainted by sin. And sometimes we need to remind ourselves of our own sinfulness. But here the the angel was very gracious seeing the the shepherd's obvious terror. He probably just see it on their face. What does he say to them? He says, do not be afraid. This is what angels always said. And this, this kind of plays against the idea that there's some kind of language that angels speak that we can't understand. Wherever an angel spoke to someone in the Bible, it was always understood. So the idea that you're going to speak in some unknown tongue and that's angel talk 
is ridiculous. It's not biblical at all. Because wherever an angel spoke in the Bible, it was clearly understood. And so the sequence of events here in the angel's appearance to the shepherds is the same as Gabriel appeared to Zacharias and Mary. The angel appears first, and then those whom he appeared to are frightened. And then what does the angel do? He speaks words of comfort. He delivers his message, and he gives a promised sign. See, there's a sense in which it's right to fear God. We need to understand this. The Bible declares that the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. And this has been kind of dumbed down to the point where you think of God as your, your buddy up, upstairs or whatever. That's ridiculous. Godly men are always marked by reverence for God. But reverence doesn't mean that as believers, as those who've been redeemed by Christ's blood and his sacrifice, we don't need to be terrified of God. That's not the God we serve. Romans and Galatians tells us, for you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, Paul reminded the Romans. But he says, you received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Why? Because we don't need to fear God as our judge if we're saved, if our sins have been forgiven. God says to his people, as he did to Abraham, do not fear over and over and over again. I am with you. And so the gospel is good news because it banishes fear. As those, as one who's trusted in Christ for my salvation, I don't, I don't like to look forward to death, but I don't fear death. It's hard sometimes to keep circumstances in their place in our lives. Sometimes we fear circumstances. We, we start thinking about things and things are unraveling and we think, oh, wow, this is getting out of hand. And pretty soon we don't even think God's in charge anymore. We don't need to fear these kind of things. God is in charge. He's sovereign over all things. So when you know Christ through the gospel of, of Jesus Christ, it banishes fear in your life. You don't have to live a fearful life. There's so many people walking around today who are fearful of a silly virus or a vaccine or whatever. Last time I checked, we're all going to die. Whether it's from a virus or getting hit by a bus, you're going to die. And guess what? It's appointed by God when that will happen and how that will happen. So we don't need to be fearful over these silly things. Number two, the gospel is good news because it brings great joy. This is what it says in verse 10 here. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy. What's he saying? He's saying the shepherds did not need to fear because this, this angel was not bringing news of judgment. He was bringing good news. First John 4.14 says the father has sent the son to be what? The savior of the world. We have to be reminded when we share Christ that it is supposed to be good news. That's what that word proclaim the good news means. It's one of Luke's favorite terms. He uses it over four, 24 times in his gospel. 
And the good news of the gospel is that the saving God sent the Savior to redeem the sinners. And that news should produce great joy in your heart, in your life. As 1 Peter 1.8 says, joy inexpressible and full of glory when you understand that Christ died for you and you put your faith, your trust in him and he saved you and he transformed you. And that's reserved for those whose sins have been forgiven through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, Christ brings joy into the lives of all those who trust him and serve him. And we need to be reminded as Christians, you know, we don't need to be walking around, oh, woe is me, oh, well, the world's just getting so bad. Hey, the worse it is, the more exciting it gets. What's God going to do next? How's God going to intervene? Yeah, is it going to go down the tubes? Eventually it is. We don't know if it's now or later. It's kind of like watching a football game and you, you don't know how it ends. Things keep on changing. John fifteen eleven says, These things I have spoken to you, Christ says, that my joy may be in you. We can have the joy of Christ. And then he says that your joy may be what? Full. The idea is full to overflowing. When's the last time you looked at how much joy you have in your life? Thirdly, the gospel is not just there to banish fear and to bring great joy, but it also is for all people. Verse 10, I bring you the good news of great joy. It says that will be for all the people. All the people. In other words, there's only one gospel. This gospel applies to everybody, whether you believe it or not. The original word here, laos, in the, the, the original language, refers first to the nation of Israel. Because salvation is from the Jews. But the promise of salvation is not just for them. That's where they got messed up in their thinking. God gave them the word and said, hey, this is for you to share. And they held on to it with white knuckles and said, no, we're the privileged people. And he said, fine, I'll reach the Gentiles through another means. And that's kind of what's going on now with Israel. But Simeon says, after seeing Jesus in the temple as a baby, he says, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. It's interesting that he says, it's the presence of all peoples, plural, but then he ends it, the glory of your people, singular, Israel. It really reflects prophecies made about about Israel throughout the Bible that nations will come to light and kings will will be affected through this nation. The good news of salvation, having been proclaimed first to Israel, is now what? Proclaimed throughout the world. That's what Matthew 28 is all about. Go into all the world. And share the gospel. The prophet Haggai calls Christ the desire of all nations. 
Why? Because all nations need Christ. There's not a person living on earth, Pope included, who doesn't need forgiveness through Christ. So he banishes, it banishes fear, it brings great joy, it's for all people. Fourthly here, the gospel is good news because it emphasizes the individual. Now this may fly in the face of what I just said, but theologically this is true. He says in verse 11, unto you, unto you. It's kind of specific. He's not a general thing here. He says, no, he's talking about an individual. He's talking here to these individuals. Uh, Jesus, one of the greatest sermons he ever preached was preached to an individual man, Nicodemus. See, it's important to remember that when Christ died on the cross for our sins, he did so for individuals. This is a very important theological point. Those of us who have placed their faith and trust in Christ for forgiveness and the salvation of their souls are the ones that Christ has died for. Theologically, he died a specific death, not a general death. I mean, exactly whom Jesus died for is a point of theological disagreement among evangelical believers. Some Christians believe that Jesus died only for the elect. This is the doctrine of limited atonement, we call it. The L in Calvin's tulip. Other Christians believe that Jesus died for everyone who has or ever will live. This is the doctrine of unlimited atonement. That's held by a lot of Arminians. Limited atonement teaches that sometimes, sometimes it's called particular redemption. It goes by that name as well. It's based on the doctrine of Election and predestination that we see in Scripture. And the thinking is this, since only the elect of God will be saved, Jesus must have died only for them. Otherwise, Jesus' death failed those who are not elect. (laughs) Because if Jesus died for everyone, then hell will be full of people for whom Jesus died. And so the question is, was his atonement insufficient? If Jesus died only for the elect, then his atonement perfectly accomplishes its goal. Every person for whom Jesus died will be in heaven. The people on the other side of the fence, we would be on this side, limited atonement. We believe that Christ died a specific death for specific individuals. The unlimited atonement idea, on the other hand, says that Jesus died for everyone, but only those who respond in faith will reap the benefits of his sacrifice. They say Jesus' death was sufficient for all, but it's only effectual for some, those who have faith. If Jesus did not die for everyone, they say, then the offer of salvation is empty, because the non-elect cannot be saved. And they base it widely on 1 John 2, 2, that says he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
And they use that verse and they say, see, this is teaching unlimited atonement. So you have to look at that verse and you have to understand what it's saying. I mean, logically, that's what it looks like it's saying. But if you believe that, then an interpretation of that kind strips the work of Christ on the cross of any actual atonement for anyone specifically. It's all based on your choice of Christ. And it provides only a potential satisfaction of God's wrath. So what does it mean here when it says the whole world, the whole world must be understood as an expression that refers to humanity throughout the earth, but not necessarily to every individual. In other words, in all of humanity, there's only one sacrifice for sin, and that is Christ. It identifies the earthly realm of mankind to which God directs his reconciling, reconciling love and provided propitiation through Christ. Well, how do you know if you're elect or not? Because you'll trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you hear the gospel message, what's the gospel message? The idea that you're a sinner and without God's intervention, you will not be saved. You need the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice in order to be saved from your sin. So the Bible says if you believe that Jesus came to earth as God, and you believe that he lived a life, and you believe that he died, was baptized, and all the goodness of Christ did while he was here, and then after he died three days later, he rose from the dead, and that his sacrifice, and his sacrifice alone is sufficient payment for your sin, you affirm those and you say, yes, that's, that's my Savior. I want to trust in Christ and in Christ alone for the forgiveness of my sin. Then you will be saved. So it's for all people, but it also emphasizes the individual. Fifthly here, verse 11, because it saves... Look at what it says in verse 11. Unto you is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. What is he a Savior from? He's a Savior from sin. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. See, we can't save ourselves. This is the problem. As much as we want to, as much as we think we can, it will never happen. You will never be in heaven if you are trusting in your own righteousness, in your own good works, in your own goodness. Because the Bible says, unfortunately, you don't have any. I don't have any. None of us have any. For all have sinned, the Bible says, and fall short of God's glory. God has a standard. It's a glorious standard. And he says you fall short. You're never ever going to be able to make that cut you know if we went down to pier 39 this afternoon and said okay we're going to have a contest see who can jump to alcatraz from the end of pier 39 some of you may give it a really good shot some of you may just get off the pier and just sink like a rock others may go 10 feet some may even go 20 feet but i can guarantee you one thing nobody is going to land on alcatraz with one jump. 
It's the same thing with salvation. He, we need a savior because we are in our sin. But he's also a savior from ourselves. Romans 8, 2 says, For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. He is a savior from ourself. Some of our biggest enemies are ourselves. <laughs> and God saves us from that. But he's also a savior from Satan. In Acts chapter 26, verse 18, Paul's interaction here with the Lord. He says, Who are you, Lord? On the road to Damascus. And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to anoint you as a servant and a witness to the things to which you have seen in me and to those in which I will appear to you. And then he says this, delivering you from the people, from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Why? Verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. He saves us from sin, he saves us from ourselves, but he also saves us from Satan, from the power of Satan. And if you're not living for Christ today, if you haven't trusted in Christ, that's whose power you're living by. You're not living by God's power, that's for sure. But look at the description here of Jesus. It describes him as Savior. This was the whole reason he came, the Gospels tell us, to save his people, what? From their sins. The obvious truth is often kind of obscured by all the Stuff we have going around us today when we present the gospel. I mean, a lot of times people present the gospel. We'll come to Jesus and, you know, all your needs will be met. All your felt needs will be met. You know, it'll help your marriage. It'll help your family. It'll help your job. It'll help your wallet. It'll help everything. Just come to Jesus and be happy, happy in Jesus. That's not why Jesus came to die. He came to die for your sins. That's your greatest need. He didn't come to give you a sense of purpose for living. He does that, but that's not his sole reason for coming. Man's true problem is one of sin. All we have to do is look around us. Everyone is guilty of breaking God's holy law and deserves eternal punishment in hell. This is what the negative aspect of the gospel truly says. And the true gospel says that, you know what, Jesus Christ came into this world as a human being in order to rescue people from sin, from guilt, not from their feelings, but true guilt that damns to hell. Why? Because he's a savior, but he's also Christ. This is another title for this baby that was born in such humble circumstances. It's a very exalted title, really. It refers to the Messiah, the anointed one, 
one placed in a high office worthy of exaltation and honor. Jesus was anointed first in the sense that he was God's appointed king. He's the king of kings, Revelation 17, 14 says. But he's also anointed as our great priest, Hebrews 3, 1, the priest for his people. What's a priest do? A priest mediates. A priest is there to be between the people and God. We need a mediator. Christ is our only mediator. And he constantly makes intercession for us. Think about that. He never, he never hesitates. He never takes a break. He's constantly running interference for us, intercession for us. 24-7. Why? Because he's a great high priest. He doesn't take a vacation. He doesn't take a day off. He's there to help us when we need him. But he's also anointed not just savior or king and, and high priest, but also as prophet. He's God's final and greatest spokesman, Hebrews 1 says. It says in, in the last times, you know, in previous times, God spoke in a lot of different ways to a lot of different people. But in these end times, he spoke through one, period, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the living word of God. And that debunks all the people out there saying, oh, I got a fresh revelation from God. I was shaving in the mirror and God appeared and here's what he told me. Well, I don't believe that at all. I'm not saying that it didn't happen, but I know it wasn't God. Last time I checked, the canon's closed. He's given us his word. He's not giving us his word each and every day, new revelation. It's complete. And that's why we can have faith and trust in it. But you have Savior Christ in the last term here, Lord. It's a, really a, a term of respect that you would call someone. It's given to someone in a position of authority or uh, leadership. Especially it was the title borne by slave owners. People who owned slaves were called Lord. Dulos was the slave. And so when you call the Lord Jesus, you're acknowledging you're subservient to him. You're, you're acknowledging that you're here as, as, as one in submission to him. I mean, to say that Jesus Christ is Lord is not just to say, oh yeah, I respect him, he's a leader. No, it's to say that he is God. That's what you're saying when you say that. When used in reference to Jesus Christ, that word Lord, it really implies all the, the meaning of Yahweh. The name of God. And that's fundamental to being a Christian. You can't be a Christian if you're not willing to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. I went to a school that taught, well, you can come to Jesus as Savior and not Lord, and he'll save you, but then down the road, you can acknowledge him as Lord eventually. So you can get saved from your sin, but then you can continue to sin, do whatever you want, because you're saved, but you're not acknowledging Jesus as Lord. So that's not true. That's not biblical. The Bible says that we need to declare and live as Jesus is Lord. That means he is 
the leader. He is the one that's ruling your life. You're the one that is subservient to his word and his purpose and his design for your life. No one who does not affirm, anyone who does not affirm the the lordship of Christ cannot be saved, in my mind. John 8, 24, he says, unless you believe that I am God, you will die in your sins. And when you say Jesus is Lord, you're saying that he is God. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So that's a very important aspect of this, that he saves. He saves from sin, he saves himself, he saves from Satan. And we need to understand that it means that we need to, to proclaim this message boldly today. But it also glorifies God, the gospel does. He says there in verse 14, glory to God in the highest. The gospel proclaims God, God's remedy for sin to our hearts. Romans 5, 6 says, For while we were yet sinners, we were helpless, we were stuck in our sin. What does the Bible say? At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We didn't have to clean ourselves up. When we were still in our sin, when we were still lost, it says that he died for us. The gospel proclaims God's promise of eternal life. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, period. It's not a question mark. It's not a suggestion. If you believe in the Son, you will have eternal life. And that verse goes on. It says, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. See, a lot of times we don't understand if we're outside of Christ, we are placed under the wrath of God. God does not take pleasure in us, even as his created beings, if we are not in Christ. There's a a relationship of wrath and judgment that we have with God. That's why we need someone to fix it. That's why Jesus came, to fix it, to be our Savior, to save us, not just from our sin, but from the wrath of God. See, that's the misnomer about hell. People say, well, they go to hell. They're just going to have a big party down there for, the, for all eternity. Why wouldn't you want to go there? That's, that's not what hell's about. Hell, and then other people say, well, hell's the total absence of God. Well, for someone who doesn't know God, that would be a vacation, I would think. That's not what hell is. People in hell will be just as much in the presence of God as people in heaven. They're just on the wrong side of the fence. They're under the the presence of God's what? Wrath. Constantly. Forever. As judgment for their sin and rejection of the Savior. Those in heaven are in God's presence. What? As a result of his, in his glory. You're, You're in his glory. In the glory of his presence. Because of Christ. Nothing glorifies God so much as the gospel of his grace. In Romans 16.25, Paul says this, Now to him who is able, he closes the whole book of Romans off with this, to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, 
that was kept for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. You want to live a glorious life for God? You have to go through Christ. You can't do an end around. There's no way else to fix this outside of the sacrifice of Christ. Every time we preach the gospel, God is glorified. The last thing here, the gospel is good news because it gives real and lasting peace. Look at what it says in verse 14, and on earth, peace. Do you think people are looking for peace today? I would say yes. Are people looking for goodwill? I would say yes. Jesus is our peace. He alone can make peace. We can't make peace with ourselves. You can go off on your little retreat and do all you do and stare at your navel, whatever. You're not going to create your own peace. Jesus is our peace. Rome, or John chapter 16, verse 33, he says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, what are you going to have? He says, you're going to have tribulation, you're going to have trials, you're going to have problems, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And if you're in me, you can take heart. If you're in Christ, you can take heart. As as much as things come unfurled here in this world, into the gutter, you know what? Take heart. We're not to despair as believers. We're to take heart. Why? Because in Christ we have his peace. It doesn't come by treaties or agreements. It will come through the Prince of Peace. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, it says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called, what? Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, what? Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. See, when you're in Christ, there's no end to peace. You don't have to seek peace because you're living in peace each and every day. Because you understand what it means to have your sins forgiven. You understand what it means to be able to look forward to a life of eternal glory in his presence. Not because of who you are, but because of who Christ is. And where you put your faith, your trust. I want to ask you this morning, have you received the good news of Jesus Christ? Because he alone is the only one that can give you true joy, true peace. I pray you find that this Christmas season. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that as we look at the gospel of Christmas, that you would help us to, first of all, personalize it as individuals, Lord, that we would come to understand what it means to proclaim you as Lord and possess you as Lord and Savior and put our faith and trust in you personally. Lord, when we do that, your word says that you'll change us. You'll, you'll forgive us of our sin. You'll relieve us of the burden that we've been carrying. And you'll give us peace. You'll give us joy. You'll give us purpose in life, living for you. Not just for ourselves. 
Father, I pray that there's any here this morning who's yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ. Lord, I ask that you would do that work in their heart as only you can. Lord, that you would first convict them of their own sin. We all have sinned, but Lord, I pray that you would convict them of their sin. That you would show them there's no way that they could do enough to be forgiven for their sin. That they have to trust in someone who has done everything for them. And that being Christ. And that they'll just simply cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. Save me from my sin. I'm tired of living this life for myself. I'm trying to dig out of a hole that just seems to be getting bigger and bigger each and every day. You know what? God's there for you. Christ is there for you. You cry out to him, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And you mean it in your heart. And you acknowledge him as Lord and Savior. He'll save you. He'll change you. He'll give you purpose and meaning. Free you from the burden of sin. For believers here, Lord, I pray that you'll give us a renewed effort to reach out to a lost and dying world that we would not think of ourselves as self-righteous, but Lord, we, we all came from this place of sin. And Lord, we all need your grace to stay away from sin each and every day. But Father, we pray that as we go out into this world that you would give us a message of hope, a message of forgiveness, a message that touches the hearts of men and women and children with your grace, with your love, with your forgiveness. Lord, help us to proclaim, be bold to proclaim the gospel message this holiday season, this Christmas season. Then maybe somebody will ask us, why do we celebrate Christmas? And we'll be able to actually tell them. Father, we thank you. We ask your blessing upon our time across the way and with our food and fellowship. And Lord, we pray that you would send each of us off with a blessing today. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.